0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and his mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Our scripture reading today is from Exodus 34, verses 1 through 10, and 29 through 35. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the, mountain, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in the mount, in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: All right. Thank you, Chandler, for reading that lengthy passage this morning. But I wanted I, I want us to be in I want us to have scripture in front of us as much as we can. That's a good thing. Um, but this this passage, I wanted us to see it in its in its full context here. Uh, before I dive into it, if if you, if You missed it in the very beginning. There are black notebooks on the aisle. We'd love to have you fill out your presence with us this morning if you haven't done that already. Uh, Before you leave, you can just pass those down as we go. But this, um, this passage here is a fascinating passage about Moses' shining face. Uh, in, in every sermon in this series, I've been including a different work of art. Sometimes I've talked about them, sometimes I haven't mentioned them at all, but today I want to mention the one that's up here. Uh, this is Michelangelo's Moses. Uh, and uh, you can see here that, if you, actually, if you look at this one on your, if you want to look at it on your phone, it's, it's a full-bodied sculpture where he's uh, standing, uh, no, he's not standing, he's seated Uh, but it shows the whole body of Moses, and it's an amazing thing. I'm fascinated by marble sculpture, in particular, um, because, you know, are are there any sculptors in the room, by any chance, people who dabble in sculpture? All right, Joe Gilder raised his hand. (laughs) When you sculpt with bronze, you're, you're basically creating a form, and then you cast it. And so you're, you're adding to and carving away and shaping and kind of making with a clay and wax form the thing that you want to have at the end that you pour the bronze into. But with marble, with sculpting marble, all you can do is remove. There is no adding back, and it's unforgiving. And so the things that Michelangelo carved it's nearly impossible for me to get my head around, how does one just even know how to do that? Like, how do you know, how do you know when you haven't taken away too much? Um, this is his sculpture of Moses, and, and he's creating this moment uh, that's really about the passage that we just read today. And so Moses is seated, He's looking very serious. He's holding, actually, if you see the full sculpture, he's holding the two tablets, bearing the Ten Commandments in his arm. And, and that's what Michelangelo is wanting to convey, the glory of Moses here. And so he gives him glorious features. He gives him long flowing hair and a beard that's kind of gently tangled in his hand as he's he's kind of holding his beard and his hair and he's kind of athletically perfect physically when you look at him. He's got this posture of confidence. And to top it all off, Moses gave him horns. And you may be thinking, why why would Moses have horns? horns and so we're going to talk about that and to to tease it a little bit I'll just tell you this you you have them too if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, So we'll get back to that in a minute but I want to trace the story of what's happening here uh, in this passage. So we talked about this last week over pancakes um, but Moses had been up on Mount Sinai speaking with God and God had given him the Ten Commandments, and he was up there for a long time. And while he was up there, the people of Israel were down there in the valley, uh, and they thought Moses just ghosted him. They thought that he was gone, that he wasn't coming back, and that they were there now in the wilderness. And Aaron, the priest, was there, uh, although he wasn't really a priest yet, but he was kind of leading with Moses. And they looked at Aaron and they said, okay, so um, I guess we need a new God now. Uh, So why don't you make us one like the Baals that the Canaanites worship make a golden calf and we'll bow down to it and worship it and so Aaron did this and in his um, uh, In a moment of spectacular duplicity when he was confronted said I put the gold in the furnace and out came this calf Uh, It's just it's it's and 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 it's been happening since um, And before people have been speaking this way about the things that we do Um, and And then they worshiped it and they said of the golden calf, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And while all that was happening down on the valley floor, Moses was up there meeting with God and God was carving with his very own finger the 10 commandments that he was gonna come down with and the Lord said to Moses, those people down there, I'm gonna wipe them off the face of the earth. They've abandoned me and they're worshiping another God and Moses said, "Don't, don't do that. Let me go down and we'll we'll repent. And so that's what happened, so they went down and when Moses came down holding those two tablets of stone and he saw what was happening and he saw their rebellion, the Lord's anger was burning against their rebellion and Moses was angry too. And when he saw them worshiping the golden calf, he threw the stone tablets down on the ground and smashed them to pieces. In the days that followed, they, they repented, they checked themselves they said we'll never do that again which they would many many times and moses continued to meet with god in a way where scripture gets to me it's 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 kind of a it gives me a sense of wonder and also a sense of fear because it talks about how moses continued to meet privately with god and in exodus 33 it says he spoke God spoke with Moses as a man speaks to his friend. And so Moses had this pattern, this habit, where he would go off for a while and have these meetings with God. And then he would come back. And in those meetings, God promised, I will preserve my covenant with these people, even though they're stiff-necked. And he promised, Moses, you will continue to lead them. But Moses Knowing how difficult of, a, of an assignment this was, he, he, he very famously and succinctly said, if you, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't lead us up from here. Let this just be the end. And then Moses asked God a big question. And the question was this. He said, please show me your glory. And God said, you you can't see my face and live. Nobody can. But God said, "I'll, I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock, and I'll cover your face with my hand, and I will pass by, and as I'm passing by, I will take away my hand, and you will see my back. But my face will not be seen. And so that's what's happening in today's passage. That's what's going on. That's the context here. Moses is headed up onto the mountain again for ultimately two reasons. The first reason is to obtain a new copy of the Ten Commandments. And the second is to behold God's glory. And when Moses comes down, he is carrying both. The law of God and the radiance of God. And so I want to unpack then, that's, that's kind of context to unpack the encounter that we just read this morning. And I want to note three things that to this day are things that transform people's lives. They're things we fight, and they're also things that transform people's lives. The severity of God, the mercy of God, and the glory of God. And those three things must always be connected. The severity of God, the mercy of God, the glory of God. Let's start with the severity of God. Our culture doesn't have much of an appetite for this one right now. We want God to be somebody who is cool with us as long as we're trying our best. But that's not the God of the Bible. And it's really not a picture of love. Uh, A lot of our objection to the idea of a severe God is that's not loving. But in the process of even saying that, we're creating a definition of love that means a particular thing that is not really the way we would ever want to love one another. It's a way of saying, God, if you want to really be loving toward us, it needs to be a very hands-off, no opinions, only supportive of us in our quest to try to figure out how to make ourselves happy. And that's not the way God works at all. Our culture doesn't have a lot of tolerance for the severity of God because we reduce the notion of love to the idea of supporting people in any path they choose as though they're all equally valid and that all somehow have the same potential to lead us to happiness and contentment. But here's a passage where we're reminded of an immutable fact, and that is that God is utterly holy utterly holy. And believe me when I say this, you don't want him to be anything less. In fact, you don't need him if he's anything less. There is a ferocity to his holiness and a perfectly righteous justice to it. And even as God is promising Moses that he is going to keep them as his own, he says, and he says it very clearly, that he will, quote, by no means clear the guilty. That's what God says. He will by no means clear the guilty. And he goes on to say that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on their children and on their children's children and on their children's children's children. This is the severity of the holiness of God. And Moses pleads for pardon because he realizes that that is checkmate, that that there is no place for them to go if this is the case. And so Moses pleads for pardon and God says to him, what I'm going to do with you is so awesome the world doesn't even have a category for it. Amazing things are going to happen. It's an awesome thing that I will do with you. And so here's the tension, right? The tension is that God will never condescend to being anything other than utterly holy, ever. And he will not accept anything less than utter holiness from us period that's the severity of God that's not just the Old Testament God but the New Testament God is cooler right that is the God of the Bible and it's unavoidable if the God that you worship is not like this at all you can worship a God like that but but don't make the mistake of thinking it's the God of the Bible because it's not The God of the Bible is severe in his holiness. This is the severity of God, that he will not lower his standards to accommodate rebellious people. He will not. And that standard will never budge. So, what do we do with that? What hope do we have? Ah, Then we get to the mercy of God. And that's something we see all throughout this passage. And this, this, this is not a contradiction. His holiness and his mercy are not a contradiction. But with the rebellious nature of his people named, he said, listen, I see them for what they are. He calls them a stiff-necked people, right? With the rebellious nature of his people named, he says he is a merciful God, and that he is slow to anger, and that he is abounding in steadfast love, and that he forgives iniquity, He doesn't dismiss it but he forgives it and then he says and this is my paraphrase of of some of the verses in the passage we read you just watch what I'm going to do the world has never seen the kind of mercy and grace I will show and it will be a marvel to all and you will have no category for it see this is the thing we have to understand is that God's severity and his mercy are interwoven they're joined One doesn't come at the expense of the other. They happen in tandem. His severity and his mercy happen together. And it's a foreshadowing of the cross of Jesus Christ. And then we come to the glory of God. God gives Moses his law again and then there's this unfolding of the story, this literary device that I love is that God tells him what he will do. You come up on the mountain, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. My glory will pass you by. And, you know. and then he doesn't explain what happened there. All that we heard is that, is that he came down from talking with God, and then we're given this picture of him and that he is just a blazing glory. Moses is. So Moses describes what would happen, but then he doesn't describe the event itself, he just gives us this aftermath. He comes down from the mountain, he's radiating light, glory is emanating from him. In fact, the language used to describe Moses' face literally means that his face shot out beams of light. Or, the medieval translation was that he was horned in glory. That glory was coming out of him like like horns of light. And so that's why, When you see Renaissance images of Moses, many of them, not just Michelangelo, but many of them have him looking horned. It's not that he's joining him to some kind of paganism, but that it's intended to kind of represent the glory of God coming out of him. It's not like he has a sunburn, right? It's that that he is a light source. That's what the language is telling us. So what do we make of that glory? What do we make of the glory of God? Well, he tells Moses, my glory is so intense that it would destroy you if you beheld it, that we can't handle it. But at least here we're given a context for it, right? Because here's the context. Moses is hidden in the cleft of a rock, shielded from seeing God until all he could get was a peek at his backside, and Moses came down, so radiant, with glory that people were afraid to behold him. That's the kind of glory we're talking about with God. Which, by the way, that's the kind of glory that fits the severity of God we were talking about. And it's also the kind of glory that matches the mercy of God that we find in the pages of Scripture. Moses came down from the mountain and the people saw him and they wanted no part of that. Right? They saw the radiance of Moses, horned in glory, shooting out these beams of light. And they said, nah, we're not going to talk to him. We need some space. And so Moses had to wear a veil in order to just be around them. He had to wear this veil to address the people, to reassure them that God had not rejected them. Here's where the severity and the mercy and the glory of God intersect. God is completely uninterested and unwilling to grade any of us on a curve. His glorious righteousness is the only standard that he will allow. And yet, he promises mercy and he promises forgiveness that will leave the world awestruck how? how will that happen? If you're here and you're and you're and you would say I don't know that it would be accurate for me to call myself a Christian but I'm interested in, in understanding what is it really that Christians believe One of the things that you may think that Christians believe because this can be a cultural um, uh, red herring is that Christians believe that God wants you to be the best person that you can be and that Jesus loves you, and that if you're the best person you can be, because Jesus loves you, when you die, you get to go to heaven. But what Christianity professes, what Christianity really believes, this is it's not about being better than everybody else. In fact, Christianity is a faith where we say, we have no hope of salvation if we're trusting in ourselves. None. Because we believe in the severity of the holiness of God, and because we believe that we have all sinned and fallen short of that glory. And so what is our hope? It's that somebody would be holy for us. It's that somebody would obtain the perfect record of righteousness that we fail to obtain and would give it to us by taking our sin upon himself and robing us in his righteousness. And that is what Christ does for those whose faith is in him. And how does he do it? Where does he do it? on the cross, the cross of Christ. At the cross of Jesus, the severity and the mercy and the glory of God are on full display. Here, God is addressing the sin of humanity severely. What does it take to atone for the sins of the world? The death of his own son. Here is God atoning for our iniquity by accepting a perfect sacrifice Never, never lowering his standard of perfect holiness. Never. But instead what he's doing is he's sending his son to meet that standard on our behalf. And so when our faith is in him, we like Moses are transformed. We become horned with glory too. We become people who radiate the mercy and the grace of Jesus. And Jesus says this. He says, The world will see our good deeds and they will praise our Father who is in heaven. He says in the Great Commission, You will be my witnesses in the world, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He says, You will receive the Holy Spirit. He says that we will be a city on a hill, a lamp on a stand. In a very real sense, part of our call in this life is to live as people who have beheld the glory of God and radiate that glory in, way that others, in ways that others see it. And the process is similar to how it actually worked for Moses, in case you're wondering, like, how do we do that? Because Moses' radiance came from what? Being in the presence of God his his radiance came from being in the presence of the Lord when we spend time in God's presence he radiates through us how do i know that because that's how it works for everything what you spend time with radiates out of you right you may say i don't know if that's the case well are you consumed with video games you probably talk about video games a lot right are you consumed with are you a foodie you probably know the good restaurants in town and when somebody says where should we eat you're like I'll tell you, right? Or maybe you're somebody who consumes vast amounts of political news. The chances are good we would know by looking at your Facebook page because it comes out of you, right? It's how it works for us, that what we consume comes out of us. What we spend time with radiates from us, and God made us this way. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he tells us the light of the gospel displays the glory, glory of Christ in us. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, people, you're, you're, you're a lamp on a stand. You're a city on a hill. We can ascend to the presence of the Lord and radiate his glory, or we can stay in the lowlands making idols, and that will radiate from us too. But what he calls us to is One of our values here for any follower of Jesus Christ at Christ Pres, and that's that we would spend time with Jesus every day, right? The severity and the mercy and the glory of God transform us, and I want to paint a picture of it because I had a a conversation with a kid this week. Uh, Not one of my kids, but I had a conversation with a kid. Let me put him at about... 12 or 13 years old, I'm going to guess. I didn't ask him his age. But I was teaching at our um, Curious Christianity series. I was teaching the portion on money. And at the end we did a Q&A and somebody uh, stood and asked my thoughts on whether it's okay to spend money on pleasurable things. You know, so as Christians, is pleasure spending allowed? And... I loved the question because there was a family there who had just returned from a trip out west where they had gone to a bunch of the national parks. They'd been to Zion and Grand Canyon and Arches and all these places that if you've been to them, you kind of know that it's kind of a life-changing experience. And so my answer, seeing them, my answer was an enthusiastic, oh yes. Oh yes, it's a good thing to spend resources on things that bring pleasure. And I talked about, and I talked with one of those kids who was on that trip afterward, And I asked him how it was, I said, how was it? And when he started to talk about going to Zion National Park, his eyes filled with a sense of wonder and glory, and I could tell he was searching for the words to try to describe what he had seen. And in watching him try to describe what he had seen, some of the glory of what he had seen, was on display even in that conversation. It was just coming out of him. He didn't just go out west, but in the act of going out west, he brought a sense of the glory of the west home with him. And guess what? This world that we live in will benefit because he did that. This world will benefit because he will have things to offer, things people need, because the Lord is cultivating in his heart a sense of wonder and a hunger for glory, a desire for more of that. After all, that's one of the ways God draws people to himself as he awakens wonder, that question in us that says there's got to be more, and it's got to be amazing. God's glory transforms us. And so does reckoning with his severity and his mercy. They put life in perspective. They remind us that we were created for glorious things. We were designed to live in right relationship with our creator. And we have a savior who accomplishes the way for that. And so my prayer for us as a church is that God would make Cool Springs a community that is horned in glory, that radiates the wonder and the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ who loves us and who keeps us. Let me pray. Father, thank you for passages of scripture like this that remind us of a couple things. They remind us of your severity, your holiness, the fearsomeness of daring to enter your presence But they also remind us, this passage also reminds us, as do so many places in Scripture, that you have not withheld your presence from us, but you have made a way for us to be in your presence fully through the mercy and the grace of Christ, through the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, through the atoning sacrifice given to us by way of a cross and an empty tomb. And so, Lord, we thank you that the model for your relating to us is not that you lower your standard of righteousness and holiness, but that you satisfy it, you meet it for us through Jesus, who is our only hope. And so, Lord, would you make us to be people who are willing to behold the severity of you, even as we desire to behold the mercy of you and the glory. And we're thankful for your mercy and your kindness to us. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.